This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, Canon firms up its firmware, digital capture, let's get real, or can we? And which comes first, skill or artistry? All that and much more coming up next on episode number 87 of This Week in Photography. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we've got a great crew lined up. We've got Nicole Young in the house. Hey, Nicole. Hello. And we've got Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Good to be here. And, of course, and always, a fixture on the show is Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Dudes, great to be here. Wait, hey, Nicole's here, too. She's not dude. Oh, dude, dude. Sorry. <laughs> Come on. Uh, yeah, so we big, pretty big show. We've got uh, lots of news things and con- and some controversial things to chat about today. Um, but uh, before we get into that, I wanted to just mention the ongoing linking contest that we have. Basically, it's it's very simple. If you link link over to Scott's blog right now, which is at photofocus dot com, you could win a prize, which is basically three of Scott's eighty eight secrets books or. Um, no, he's giving away one of three books to three people and uh, a free one-year premium subscription to lynda.com, which I got to say, by the way, I've been knee-deep in lynda.com over the, the past several weeks, and that's an awesome resource. So lynda.com. And um, Steve Simon, the Aperture Nature Photography Contest, which the workshop itself is coming up next week. What's the deal with the contest now, though? Can you give us a quick update? Well, I think um, there's going to be one more leg in the Aperture Contest, the, the final one. And um, details, I believe, are going to go up shortly. There's, there's going to be uh, – it's the last one, and it's uh, the same rules. And, uh, but there, I don't think it's quite ready for, for uh, entrance right now. But it, it might just be at the time of this show. So if so, go to f64.com and uh, see if it is. But it, if it's not, it will be soon after. Excellent. Cool. Thanks, Steve. And coming up in the news, uh, for all those Canon shooters out there, Canon has updated firmware for the EOS uh, 50D, 450D, and the 1000D cameras. Now, does anybody on the panel have one of these bodies, or do you know anything about it? I don't. I, don't, I mean, I shoot Canon. I don't have one of these newer ones, but I swear it seems like every time Canon comes out with a new camera, there's an update not soon thereafter that fixes a uh, vertical banding noise problem. It, it seems to be like nobody bothers to test that on any Canon cameras before they go out, and then they always have to fix it or release later. Really? So that's that's the, the sort of the, the it, it, MO? Yeah, it, it just it feels like deja vu, deja vu. I've seen this this little news item before on other cameras, but I guess as long as they eventually fix it. For those, for, Ron, for those folks that don't know what that issue is, what is the vertical banding? Uh, it, it, it usually shows up when you're shooting really low light and... Uh, you know, which is already going to low light at high ISO, especially, and, and so you're already going to see a lot of noise in the in the blacks, and this ends up showing up as sort of a vertical stripes in those blacks. So there's an actual pattern that starts to show up in there that's even more distracting and something that's almost impossible to get rid of with 
you know, noise reduction tools. Yeah. Ron, Ron, maybe you don't have the answer to this, but it, it often amazes me that firmware upgrades can kind of revolutionize the body that they're uploaded or downloaded into. Um, what are the limits to what they can do, um, you know, with, with firmware upgrades? What are the, the limitations? Is it the chip itself or can they kind of introduce new things uh, at, at will? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a complete expert on this, but a lot of the image processing that goes on, you know, even, even to build that original raw file that lives in there, there's there's a lot of sort of translation from uh, what's coming off the sensor and, and in there and some sort of processing work. And then especially for the creation of the JPEGs in camera, uh, those are the kind of things that I think are sort of programmed in firmware. And then there's just a lot of general stuff for button mappings and what does what. I, I think you could actually do a lot more than what most of these firmware upgrades offer. Uh, but I think generally the design of these cameras is to try to do stuff in firmware so that you do have the option to not only just upgrade it but also fix problems. Uh, that's yeah. you know kind of different from the way it was in the early early days of chip technology where everything was completely hardwired. Now it's really just you know it's running a little uh, little program on these more general purpose chips. It just seems like there, there's mis- they're mis- missing that last mile though. Like for me. I could shoot for months and months, and and I don't I don't typically go back to Nikon site or whatever to find out if there are new firmware updates for any of my camera bodies. So I need I need some sort of mechanism that's going to let me know. Like in Mac OS X, for example, you'll get a dialog box that says, "Hey, there's new software, new updates available. Do you want them? Yes or no." I need something like that on my on my camera body so that I'm always using the latest and greatest. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll call you, Fred, when the next firmware <laughs> yeah. happens. But it really doesn't happen all that often. But when it does, it's usually worthwhile upgrading. And I, I've seen faster autofocusing. Um, you know, it, it, it really is quite astounding uh, what can, can be improved with firmware upgrades. So they're always working on it. What were you going to say, Nicole? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I, I forgot what I was going to say. But I know my camera, the D200, it's uh, only been upgraded, I think, once. And I think it just, like, fixed a battery issue. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the thing that scares me is uh, I think I'm still, I'm still like the, the puppy on the, the newspaper when it comes to updating firmware and stuff <laughs> like that. Well, it's not like you have your camera plugged into the computer all the time, so it doesn't really know. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking in terms of just the danger of when you update your, your camera body. <laughs> you, you know, because it's like... When when Apple, you remember when the iPhones first came out, and then all the people, a bunch of people, uh, hacked their iPhones, so they could put on the third party software, and then Apple introduced an update to the software, which then bricked a lot of people's phones. <laughs> so that kind of thing, when you update firmware, it just feels like you're you're like doing brain surgery, and if you, something <laughs> something goes wrong, and you 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 cut something that you shouldn't have, you're going to paralyze the patient and you have a break. Do you remember yeah. a while back there were rumors uh, surrounding uh, sort of Nikon and some new introductions and there were the conspiracy theories that there would be some sort of an up, up, a firmware upgrade that could convert your, 12, your D3 into a D3X and double its uh, resolution and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I think there's a real mystery surrounding what actually can be done with, with firmware. Yeah. And another thing in the news, uh, and you guys may know more about this than I do. Hopefully, you probably do. Um, this fisheye Hemi plugin, which is available for Aperture, have you have you heard about that, Steve? 
Um, I took a, a, a quick look at it, but uh, I was hoping that Ron had more information on this particular <laughs> item. That's a hot, that's a hot potato. Maybe we'll come back to that one. Uh, we'll yeah, it. I mean, I looked I looked at it too, uh, just briefly, but didn't didn't try downloading or, or using it. But you know, I just I mean, just to sort of sit what it is. It's uh, just looks like it's actually a series of different plugins for dealing with different kinds of fisheye lenses and taking out the fisheye distortion and making them appear somewhat rectilinear. And there's all, there's all kinds of little tricks to do that right, and uh, you know, getting it look to look natural. Uh, the example images they have on there look pretty good. Uh, you know, it's important to remember that anytime you're doing sort of a major undistortion, you're probably going to introduce some softness. So yeah. depending on what camera you're shooting with, you may start to see artifacts. But a lot of times it can be a really nice way to go out and capture a really broad view of a scene and then have the control in post to kind of choose what you want out of that. Now, Ren, are you, are you using a bunch of plugins in Aperture or... Or are you just going with the straight out of box experience? Yeah, not not a whole lot. I usually, if I want to do some, I I generally don't do a whole lot of tweaking on my images other than color adjustments and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think some of it too is yeah. I just uh, if I come to a specific need for something, I've got a lot of other tools for doing image processing also, and you know, including tools that I was intimately involved in the development of. And yeah. A lot of times, I'll I'll just go out and do something I'm extremely familiar with and do it. Yeah. yeah, being being the journalistic guy on the on the panel, I mean these kinds of plugins, uh, you know, they don't really interest me. I I'm I'm not into altering um, pixels, so to speak. I sort of live within the capture in the on the original, and I'll I'll I'm not using a lot of plugins. In, oh, in Steve Simon, you are opening a can of worms here. We're <laughs> gonna <laughs> we're gonna dive into that uh, deeply in in the next segment here. But first, before we do that, I want to do. Um, uh, give a nod to our sponsor for today's show. It's Squarespace.com. It's brought, this show was brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're a uh, fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog, quite simply. And we're using them on Twiplog.com right now. And uh, I wish Aaron was here because Aaron has been the guy that's been knee-deep in recreating the the home on the web for the show. And every time I speak to him, which is quite often, he's raving about some new thing that he found out about Squarespace and how to how to optimize it. And Aaron is a developer. So he's he's one of those people that knows and lives inside the matrix. So he he knows what's good. So the on the on the squarespace.com side, me when I get in there, it's you know for us when we start editing posts and writing articles in there, they, the the way that they've architected the back end for that thing is really really simple and glossy and luscious. It's optimized for beginners and CSX, CSS experts, um, CSS experts. So is, have you guys done any coding in, in castigating style sheets or doing anything like that? Very I have little. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that, look at that. See, you got to be on both sides, Dean. You got to know <laughs> that this is what drives the internet, CSS, you know? I thought that was I, my inner voice, but I guess it wasn't. Sorry. At least Ron, no, come on, you, you got to know at, at least what the acronym means. <laughs> I do know what the acronym means. Yes, <laughs> I, have, I have people to do that for me. Oh, all right, all right. You, you sound like somebody else I know. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I, I've actually, I, but I have played with Squarespace, and it's it is really cool. It's just sort of, I mean, you, you don't obviously you don't have to know what CSS means to uh, to use it because it's really designed to be sort of a, a drag and drop kind of interface, and you sort of set it up. And I mean, for anybody to set up a blog on something like WordPress, you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out. 
well, you can get something up and running really quickly if you find to take a template. But when it, you know, you decide, oh, I just want to have this a little bit different. That's where it becomes next to impossible if, unless you really want to dive deep. Yeah. Squarespace is just so much easier for that tweaky kind of stuff where it's just, you know, I just want to change the size of this a little bit. I just want to adjust this margin. I just want to make this section of the page just a little bit different. And it's really easy in Squarespace. So now we, yeah. we all we all dig it. Yep. Yep. Hey, Fred, can yep. I ask Nicole a question? Mm-hmm. Since we've got her on. You're asking uh, me a question so that you can ask her a question. <laughs> well, you're, you're the guy in charge. What am I, so her I gatekeeper? Wanna, I don't want to make a mistake. I am I not, I am not to, my Nicole's keeper. <laughs> I know what happened to the last guy that sort of uh, you know went without your permission. Shallow grave. So, no, Nicole because I think the, the TWIP listeners will be aware of Nicole as this pro- prolific iStock photographer. And I've been following Nicole uh, on Twitter. And you just seem to be shooting all the time. And I wondered, Nicole, where do you get your inspiration from and your ideas? I mean, are, are you always sort of scouring the web looking for ideas? Or uh, do you wake up with a thousand ideas in your, in your brain? Hey, hey Nicole, I, wait, bef- yeah. before you answer that, just let me close off this last thing. I want to let the folks know that if they wanted to try out Squarespace, they can head over to squarespace.com slash TWIP and use the offer code TWIP to get 10% off of their their account. So now, Nicole, you can go ahead and answer. Okay. All right. <laughs> sorry, uh, that was a mature question. That's, yeah. that's, go for it. I think it's, it's, a, it's kind of hard to answer. Um, I think I just, I see things, you know, and they spark something in me, and I'm like, oh, that'd make a really neat photo. Sometimes it's real spontaneous. You know, somebody would just ask me to take their picture, and then it just kind of goes from there. Uh, I have a few photos, you know, that I would take. I have the idea in my head, and I go and I shoot it, and it turns out exactly how I wanted it. And I mean, that's just a great feeling inside when you can do that. But I, I really can't tell you where it comes from. I could probably look at a few photos and say, "Oh, I know where that came from. I know where that came from." But in general, it's just it just happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inspiration can strike at any time. Always have your camera with you would be my advice to folks. Yeah. I have found that my I think my iPhone is probably my best camera. You know, they say the best camera you have is one you always have with you. Yeah. I take pictures with that with that thing all the time. They're just for fun mostly, but But yeah. guys, let me ask you a question because, you know, I I too subscribe to that always have your camera with you and I know a lot of people are having fun with their iPhones taking pictures every every which way. But when it comes to sort of serious keeper portfolio worthy photographs, how often does that happen in your sort of in a year of shooting? I mean, in my experience, it doesn't happen all that often because I'm in a different zone when I'm sort of serious shooting uh, as opposed to just having my camera with me. What, what yeah, about you guys? I agree with that. Well, maybe it's different for photojournalists because something can happen and it's, you know, it fits with your style of photography. It's just newsworthy. But, you know, like for me, I, I do mostly stock or portraits, things like that. And I, I really, a lot of it is pre-visualized, you know, or at least prepared for in advance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. On my side, it's uh, kind of the same way because I, I, I tend to like people sh- shooting people or photographing people. And uh, I'm not I'm not the guy that's going to just go to roam around and, and do the street photography, which, Steve, I know you may have done some of that, but I don't I don't typically do that kind of stuff i like to have i'm a control freak i like to have a little more control over <laughs> the situation before i click the that's shutter. why i ask if i can ask a question <laughs> exactly <laughs> let it be known sh- let it be known that i am a control Steve, you, but, can but call, even- you can call me nicole too you don't have to call me nicole z okay oh, yeah, i'm sorry that's sorry nicole. <laughs> i kind of like it i kind of like it my question <laughs> <laughs> can, can i refer to everybody by their twitter names on this show <laughs> <right now? laughs> 
Sorry. But even street photography, Fred, I mean, I have to sort of go out with purpose and direction. I mean, there's a difference for me sort of doing my errands on the street, having a camera with me, and then purposefully wanting to make street photographs. And, and it just doesn't happen all that often. I think you really have to be in that concentration zone to, to do your best work. Yeah, but I think there's, there is a different category of photography that sort of emerged, which is just sort of the social photography, too, where you know, you're looking for interesting things that happen in the day, and then you toss a picture over to your friends, or you just keep it around as sort of a reminder of some strange thing you saw. And it's not going to be prize-winning or even a great photo, but you know, it, it's, it's almost just quick memories that you're making. So, Absolutely. Ron, what was the last photo that you snapped with your iPhone? Oh, where's it at? Hang on. It's been a while since I did it with my iPhone. Hey. And I'm going to ask you other two. I'm going to ask you this, too, so you might want to start looking. Well, while Ron's looking, I'll just tell you mine was P9 at P- LaGuardia. What's, that was my parking P9? spot. Oh, was, the number P9 or the, the parking that was spot my parking indicator? Spot. It's, it's, you know, it saved me hours of you know, crying in the parking lots and all that kind of stuff. Did Has anyone ever did, lost? Like, five years ago before iPhones came out? It, that's <laughs> what I did. I was constantly in tears looking for my car. <laughs> You're wandering around just one level lower. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, what about you? What's the last thing uh, you photographed? I took a picture of my cat. It's actually a really cute picture. <laughs> I've learned that when you take when you use your iPhone and you take a picture, you don't have to push it. You know, you can hold it mm-hmm. and then release it. Yeah. So. I, yeah, it's a cute picture. I mean, it's my cat. You know, it's kind of cliche, but yeah, yeah, I do it all the time. I twittered it too, so it's on there. <laughs> Nicolezy, uh, Ron, Ron, what was your what was your last? So photo? The, the last photo I took was uh, was in preparation to, to a, an angry letter to uh, a, play, a vendor that I bought something from. Uh, in this Ron case, it was a pair. Of... Angry? I can't believe. It. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was. I bought a pair. This is actually kind of funny, it's, and it's almost sort of optics or photography related. I bought a pair of cheap prescription sunglasses on the web. You know, thirty nine dollars glasses dot com. Yeah, uh, or something like that. I can't remember if that was the same place I bought it from, but uh, you know, you can buy polarized lenses, and um, so I ordered with polarized lenses. And, and you know, polarized lenses have have an orientation where they cut out glare, right? So if you rotate them, you'll see a different a change in sort of the reflections that come off of stuff. That's what we do in photography to with a polarizing filter to take the glare off a piece of water or something so you can sort of see below the surface. Yep. And there's a general convention with sunglasses, one would think, where the polarization should be oriented the same for both eyes. And if you don't do that, <laughs> you're walking down the street and one eye is seeing something radically different from the other eye in some situations, <laughs> like reflections in one eye and not the other. And uh, it, it's um, it's a bit disorienting, not to mention headache-inducing. So anyway, I, I took a picture of my, uh, my my sunglasses held up to a polarized light source like my monitor just to show that one lens was completely different from the other one. Wow. Did you? When did you do that? <laughs> was this just yesterday, or did you get any response yet? No, it was about two weeks ago, and I, I haven't actually composed the angry letter yet. I just took the picture. So. <laughs> let, let, <laughs> let it, it percolate, Ron, and just let it yeah. explode. Nice. Or like sure. it probably won't ever happen, but... It sounds like some kind of psychological thing, you know, like what was the last iPhone photo you took? And, and it's actually a pretty interesting question. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. The last the last thing I photographed with my iPhone was uh, two palleted or two pallets of Drobos at work. And that's, <laughs> and I, oh, wow. Nice. And I Twittered that out on the uh, on, on the Drobo account. So uh, for us, that's pretty sexy. I mean, to see two pallets. <laughs> 
Yep, two wow. two full pallets, and it, there were more. And it was. Uh, I would I would pay to see that. <laughs> you can send the check to me, and I'll I'll make sure it gets to the right spot. So continuing in the news, there was uh, there's uh, have you guys seen this link for the infinite photo as seen on Earth? Um, that, that we talk in the wiki. There's this. There's this. Basically, it's it's uh, a mosaic. I guess is a good name for it. That's made up of hundreds of photos of the world, each submitted by users on uh, MyShot. And basically, you can you know you. It's kind of like Google Earth, I guess. And you can double click and drill down to get deeper and deeper on different areas on the planet to sort of get a hey. I want. I wonder what it looks like on this part of the world. And then you just you can keep clicking to get. Deeper. It's not that. Good. It's kind of a gimmick. Yeah, I would say it's like extremely cool and very annoying because yeah. it's a gimmick. I, mean, I know a lot of people like that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the way I describe myself, really. But no, it, it just find that you keep clicking and clicking, and it's not really taking you in a direction. No, and, and and it doesn't present the the images at a large enough resolution to see them before you're zooming in to see the the mosaic leg thing. And uh, I I. Kind of agree. I think it's more annoying than interesting. So, what, so is the consensus two thumbs down on that? Uh huh. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. I think you know. It's, I mean, it's a it's a cool idea, but after oh, like it. it's an interesting yeah. idea that was poorly executed. Yeah, it's more about the idea than the actual photograph. So it's not really showcasing photography in the best way that it could. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, we looked at it. So, yeah. guys, I mean, we know less is more. And, you know, this is a kind of complex, cool kind of way to show pictures, but it's not good for pictures and it's not good for the user experience ultimately exactly. after you get past the cool factor. Very true. All right. I'm going to get into the picks of the week because I want to get into our discussion that we're going to have so I can, uh, I want to, I want to get inside Steve Simon's brain. <laughs> About, oh, no. about digital do manipulation versus not digital manipulation. But f- before we do that, uh, picks of the week. And I hope you guys are ready because uh, I'm rolling the dice. And the first one that needs to come up with a pick is Ron Brinkman. Mm. So uh, this actually was a big, long Twitter thread that started up this morning. And I'm like, well, I should just toss it up on here. Uh, my pick is not so much a single thing as, as a general tool that I think everybody should have on their computer, which is like just a good sort of a disk space visualizer. Uh, the one I use is called Grand Perspective. But the way these all work is it just goes off, analyzes your hard drive, and presents you in some sort of visual fashion what all the files are on your disk. And, and when you get that in front of you, you suddenly realize, oh, I've got a whole bunch of stuff on my disk that I wish I'd deleted ages ago. Cause it's, you know, and it just sort of has been living in a directory that you've forgotten about. Um, and I mean, you know, maybe you're one of those people who always has plenty of disk space laying around, but you know, I, I find that usage tends to expand to fill capacity. Yeah. Fred's and got so, pallets of Drobos. So. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. So maybe it's not an issue for you. Yeah. But anyway, so I, you know, Grand Perspective is the one I use. There's Omni Disk Sweeper and Disk Inventory X on the Mac. All of those are good. They're free. On the PC, I know there's something called Overdisk that's free, but I know less about what other options are on the PC. But just generally, if you don't, if you've never sort of just grabbed one of these free tools and visualize what's on your hard drive just to see what's taking up space and you're getting anywhere near the edge of needing disk space, I would suggest you do that. Now, this is slightly unrelated, Ron. Yeah, I, I remember a couple of weeks ago you were you I think you might have Twittered out about something but you were using Launch Bar or testing out Launch Bar. Are you are you still using it? And are you still happy with it? Yeah, I, I, I am. It's uh for those that don't know what Launch Bar is, it's sort of a really quick 
sort of command line or at least you know keyboard based uh, tool for launching and starting stuff up. Most people are probably familiar with Quicksilver, mm-hmm. which is a, a free a freebie version of it. Um, Quicksilver's kind of stopped development, and uh, my my only real problem with Quicksilver is it's it's not fast enough sometimes. It, it will lag behind me, and I'll get the spinning beach ball if I'm doing something really fast. You know, I do an activate and a type and an enter, uh, whereas LaunchBar just seems to be faster. But it, it does cost money, whereas Quicksilver is free. Yeah, that's it's one of those utilities that you can just really dive into and do all sorts of things with. That, and once you start using it, it's hard to move to a Mac that doesn't have it installed on it. Very much, yeah. Which I've found. Nicole Young. Yes. What my, is your pick of the week? My pick is the National Association of Photoshop Professionals. NAP. It's other, otherwise known as NAP, yes. I've been a member for about a year now. Uh, they have really awesome resources, you know, like tutorials that you can access at any time if you're a member. Uh, they have a magazine. Um, they do Photoshop World. So if you've ever been to that or if you haven't, it's really awesome. And um, they also, one thing that I love about it is they have discounts. If you're a member, you get some really great discounts. It's I think the membership is about 100 a year, $100 a year. And my favorite discount is if you live within the 48 states, you get free three-day B&H shipping. And I guarantee I've paid for my membership alone in B&H shipping. So... <laughs> Wow, I didn't know they had that discount. Yeah. That's cool. Oh, yeah, that's probably the best one. Um, but it's photoshopuser.com, and uh, if you're a big Photoshop user, then I would definitely check it out. Yeah, so. they've, they've got a ton of resources. Like the uh, the, the Kelby folks over there have kelbytraining.com yeah. as well, with, which is it's, – it's, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's like Linda, but it's um, – I don't know. It, it's it's different I, enough to I be like really the U, useful. I like the UI. I like the way that they've yeah. got it laid out where you can just sort of sit there and have Joe McNally or somebody like that take you through their, their process in sort of a segmented fashion. It's, yeah. And yeah, yeah Kelby Trade, that's separate, I think. But I know that if you're a NAP member, you get like every month, I think it's every month, you get one free session. Like you can go and watch an entire training session and they, they you know, pre-pick it for you and say, hey, this month you can watch this. So. Um, yeah, Kelby training is really great too. So I'd recommend those too, but very cool. Steve Simon. Well, I uh, Twittered this earlier in the week, but, uh, it's kind of an ode to Scott Bourne. I don't know if you saw the link guys, but it's the Sigma 200 to 500 F 2.8 lens. It's a 35 pound, $30,000 lens that probably (laughs) Scott Bourne could afford, but, uh, you know, it's 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 just you know, there's always going to be sort of the king of the lens, <laughs> the king of the the mountain in the photographic world, and I think uh, you know maybe right now it it belongs to Sigma with this monster. Wow. Uh, you know, it's two point eight, two hundred to five hundred, two point eight all the way through. Um, I'm not entirely sure, you know, what the best use of this particular specific piece of equipment is, but. Uh, is anyone interested in, in getting one? No. You know, I wonder if lensrentals.com is going to have that. And, and if so, how much is going to cost to rent that thing? Oh, that's an awesome well, they show idea. a guy hand-holding it with uh, <laughs> something that, you know, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe would it impress you from a woman's perspective to see a guy holding <laughs> it? Uh, Steve, I knew you were going to take it there. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know who, like, who would even use – when I, I have a 70 to 200, and I – my minimum, and it's a 2.8, but I go down to like 4, 5.6, usually when I'm photographing people because I want 
to make sure that their nose and their eyes, everything's in focus. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. With, out, with, such so. a, yeah, with such a long lens, unless you're just focusing out at infinity, your depth of field is going to be narrow. And if you've got a 2.8, that's crazy. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it, guys, too, because it's fast, you know, yeah. but of focus. And, you know, for sports people, perhaps wildlife shooters, if, if Scott were here, he'd give us his. I know he's got the 300 to 800. Yeah, Scott, Scott would say, I'm going to channel Scott Bourne. I, I bet he would say that's one of the a good lens for shooting uh, uh, birds and, you know, little little yeah. tiny objects that if you get really close on them, they're gonna, you're going to lose the shot. So that I could see him using that lens for that. And he may have yeah, two, of, two of them already. At, at, night, at night. I don't know if somebody could use that for sports. It's huge. <laughs> you'd be <laughs> knocking out the people next to you. <laughs> no, I think you'd have to be kind of in an anchored position on a yeah. tripod. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that lens is for people that might be compensating for something. <laughs> I'm but if anybody's saying. got a if anybody's got a big lens out there, check out this one because their lens ain't that big anymore. Yeah, trade your car in and get this lens. <laughs> exactly. So my my pick of the week is a book uh, from a guy by the name of David Dushman. Uh, the title of the book is Within the Frame: uh, The Journey of Photographic Vision. And I had a chance to speak to him about this book, and uh, essentially. He wanted to be clear that this is not a how-to book. It's not a tips and techniques book. It's about how to see when you're doing, say you're traveling somewhere, and how to not say, okay, I'm at the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to take a picture that I've seen in a travel magazine because I want to remember this moment. Remember this moment. In fact, he said, basically, if you're, doing, if you're looking at the Eiffel Tower, turn around and look behind you and shoot some stuff over there and sort of how do you how do you break the ice with the locals to to get into their world and really experience what your trip was about rather than going to these pre-programmed places that have been photographed millions of times before so it's a uh, it, it's coming out soon if it's not out already i think it'll be out within the next couple of weeks and we'll throw a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out yeah ron i just wanted to ask you because what fred described about david's book um you know, makes a lot of sense in sort of looking for your own vision in photography. But having, having done many workshops, um, it seems that a lot of photographers um, are very happy to sort of go to a spot where the classic image is in front of them and shoot with 20 other people kind of shooting the same, same picture. Um, how, how do you guys fall on, on that uh, idea? I don't know. It's weird because, you know, if I'm going someplace that I know that I'm probably not going to make it back to anytime soon, I'm going to want to I'm going to want to photograph. Like, there's, I guess there, there might be two sides of my brain. There's probably multiple, but there's there's a side of my brain that wants to just remember th- this. You know, I'm, I'm in Tokyo. I remember that I was standing in front of the Tokyo Tower or in Shinjuku or something. Um, but then there's the other side of my brain that's like, how could I make a really cool shot out of this you know so it's it's sort of 50 50 i don't i know there, there's overlap between documenting something for memory's sake and creating a piece of art but sometimes you know if i'm just there i want to whip out the g9 throw it on auto and you know snap and continue eating my lunch kind of thing so i, I think you're exactly right it's 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 like we said earlier you know there's there are different categories of photography and some of it's uh some of it's very much about just capturing a memory for yourself so i can't imagine going to some place that you know, had some iconic monument or, or something there and not taking photos of it. But I think the other thing is, you know, a lot of times that, that gives you the opportunity to kind of challenge yourself into, you know, what can I do that still captures that that iconic image but in a different way. And yeah. uh, it, obviously it's been done so many times it's going to be hard to get something that's 
completely unique, but it is still an opportunity to kind of get your brain to stretch a little bit and say, well, you know, what if I, I, I bet not many people have taken this shot, you know, laying down from this weird angle or something like that. So at least it still can push you to try something different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm going to Mexico in a few weeks, just like on a vacation. And, um, I, I don't really have anything pre-visualized in my head of what I'm going to see, but I'm trying to tell myself, well, maybe I'll go out and just use my lens baby the whole time, you know, or just, you know, only take pictures of from this angle or something like that. Cause yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that's <laughs> one of the things that I see sometimes at these workshops, people have a lot of stuff and as a matter of fact, they have too much stuff. And I think Nicole that idea of going out with one lens and working within that, the lens's limitations kind of forces you to move out of your comfort zone, you know, get in tighter if you don't have a long lens and, and just see what it can do and see what you can come up with. Uh, I think it's a real good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably a hybrid of the two, right? So you get there. It's like when you're on assignment, Steve, you, you get there and you get what your client wants and you get it in the can and then you can experiment from there. Right. So Absolutely. yeah, you, you're, you're in an exotic location, document where you are for the, for your grandchildren and great grandchildren and then start playing. So you make sure you get it, you get it in the can. So the photo assignment and the current poll uh, for this week, uh, week four of the assignment spring is still, I think it's still in progress and head over to twiplog.com to, uh, to check out the details of that and where to submit. We've got links there to link over to the Flickr discussion and the critique groups on that. And then also the poll uh, results from uh, last week. Basically, we're asking for feedback on twiplog.com. And essentially, the consensus is that people want show notes up there, you know, to sort of describe the stuff that we were talking about on the show. And then in second place was they want uh, us to link to the vendors and the stuff that we talk about in Picks of the Week. So we're going to make that happen and keep your suggestions coming in. Just uh, for the new poll, I think we're going to just we're going to post those on twiplog.com along with articles and show extras and all that kind of stuff. So check back over there often and you'll you'll see a continually evolving place. So for the uh, the the quick discussion that we're going to have, Steve Simon, (laughs) I want to talk about, you know, I I twittered out on Frederick Van, my, my Twitter account. Earlier this week, uh, this blog post that a friend of mine, Trey Radcliffe of StuckInCustoms.com, put up. And essentially, he was disqualified. One of his images were, was disqualified from the Smithsonian uh, because it was, I think, it, it, he put in quotes in the blog post, digitally enhanced. So the, the photo couldn't be put in the Smithsonian because it was digitally enhanced. So I wanted to sort of take a couple minutes to... to talk through this and sort of get my brain around what you guys think that means and you know maybe we'll spur some discussion on the blog as well before we do that i want to read this this is an excerpt from the blog post and this is basically what trey wrote back to the smithsonian he says you have a tough job nowadays figuring out where that line is crossed there's so much software inside the camera that does adjustments for light similarly there's software outside of the camera too even the raw importer for Photoshop allows drastic, allows drastic alteration of the photograph. Anyway, I understand the situation completely, and now that film is no longer used, really every single pixel has a long road from click to the final JPEG. So, Steve, what, what do you think about that? Where, where is the line, and how do you, as a photojournalist, where do you draw the line in terms of, uh, I can't go any further, or this is no longer an accurate representation of the scene? 
Yeah, well, well, first off, um, the irony is that he was disqualified from a category entitled Altered Images. Now, I haven't actually looked at what the criteria is, but, but obviously Altered Images seems to suggest that you can do stuff, but apparently you can't do anything digitally with it. Yeah. Uh, the other irony is that, you know, as, as in my opinion, you know, HDR is an incredible evolving technology that I think we're only going to see more of. And it doesn't look real. I mean, I think a lot of people will criticize sort of the, the over, overdoing the HDR technique. So you've got this kind of surreal image that uh, looks almost cartoony. But the reality is, I mean, it's probably closer to the way we see, the way our eyes see, which, of course, can pick up a lot more dynamic range than the actual digital camera. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm totally not against manipulation of, of digital images. I mean, I just think people that creatively do it and want to do it, um, it's fantastic and they can come up with great stuff. As a documentary journalist, um, I have very sort of strict boundaries that I think most documentary photographers live within and that is to kind of, and it, it's, it's, you know, harkens back to a time of old and it may not, and it's going to evolve as well, but it basically says that you're not going to kind of um, change the, the the pixels you can you can use the digital technology to lighten darken but you're not going to move something from within the frame and i agree i agree with that i mean when you when you get into the the actually moving pixels around like okay there is a there, here's a shot of you know sarah palin and there's a we didn't like the color of her her dress so we changed it to purple you know that kind of thing then I think that's that's outside of the bounds of what what is going on or what this discussion is. I think, you know, in, in terms but just one of one more thought, Fred, just to quickly add to that, and I'll ask you how you feel about this. But mm -hmm. what if you know there was something distracting in there in that image that uh, would would be a potential problem or whatever? Can you can you digital would you digitally remove it? Um, from the frame, even though it wouldn't really change anything, it could be like a coke can no. on the ground. I, I would say no. I mean, if because, if, because if it's you're, a slippery slope, yeah. But it? I think if you if you're on if you're shooting for like the, the the presidential campaign or something, you know, and or you're in the military, you know, and you're shooting things that need to be factually accurate as close as they can be to what you saw, then I'd say you don't do anything. You know, don't yeah, you shoot it nothing. and shoot it's, it and send it. But it's if, all if but if you're shooting for aesthetic purposes you know like, i'm gonna hang this on the wall or i'm gonna put this on Flickr, or you know something like that then all bets are off you know i think yeah. it's it's clay i think it's just it, it's a matter of setting setting the rules right and and whether it's the rules for a contest or a rules for the organization you work for you just need to be very clear about what is considered acceptable or not i mean in this particular case uh, you know one thing I, w I do want to react to that you said steve is that uh, hdr images don't look real and and i think that's I actually think that's a wrong statement because yeah. no, I didn't say seen, I didn't say HDR uh, images don't look real. I said some HDR. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. I think there's this there's this method of doing HDR imagery that's become common, and this particular image that was entered in the contest is one of those where it's put together in a way that it looks very you know hyper real and, and very stylized. And you know, in in my personal opinion, number one, I don't really like this photo because it's. Uh, it's taken that taken that too far, and you see this with a lot of the HDR stuff, where it's overused, and there's this look that was interesting the first couple times you saw it, and now it's just like, ugh, you know, one one more overprocessed HDR image. But the concept of 
ACR generally of capturing a wide dynamic range and then using it to help balance the photo so that it looks, you know, whatever direction you're choosing to go is is a separate thing. And I don't, I think there was a partial uh, sort of sense on the judge's part that if, as soon as you say it was an HDR image, it should be disqualified. And I don't believe that at all. I think it's more a matter of uh, of degree, you know, you need to set your rules up front for what is allowed and what isn't. But you know, even then, if you take it back a step, what about you know, where do you? So this is HDR. It could be any technique. It could be panoramas. It could be adjusting brightness and contrast, whatever. But where do you draw that line of, from what is acceptable in digital manipulation and what isn't? For example. Or it's just not even digital manipulation. What if you put a filter on your camera? You're manipulating the light that's hitting the sensor. What if you take a step to the right instead of the left? You're manipulating the, final, the scene. It's the final output that, that counts the most. And by that I mean, you know, what is, what is this image representing? Is this a, a journalistic image that is supposedly um, a depiction of something that is uh, a news picture? And if that's the case... Uh, in the journalistic world, you're not going to want to do anything to over-manipulate it. And even, even you know, changing the reality, it, it, you're trusting the photojournalist to give you an accurate and honest uh, depiction, as subjective as it might be, of the scene that he or she was covering. Yeah. So, well, documenting you know, a scene or for, for photojournalistic purposes, I think, is beyond the realm of what these HDR type images are trying to do you know so I, I don't think this image that we're looking at right now and that we'll link to in the show notes of Times square that trey did i don't think he's trying to pass this off as hey this is reality you know this is a this i'm documenting what happened in Times square at this time of the night but i think he's just so, trying to be he's trying to create a piece of art that you could frame and put in your living room or something you know but let me give you let me give you a scenario you're you're, you're a, a you know, news photographer out on location, and there's some shot that has an extraordinarily wide dynamic range. You know, there's a, a bright sunlight outside, and then there's uh, somebody crouching inside of a cave, and you're trying to get the photo that captures all of that. And, you know, realistically, the only way you could do that is to get some sort of a high dynamic range capture of that and then put it together. So you're not mm-hmm. changing what's in the scene at all. You're just showing detail in shadows and showing detail in bright areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might have to combine two photos to do that. Is that, uh, is that no, crossing the bounds? Yeah, it is crossing the boundaries. Once you begin to and, – and again, look, this is evolving. But right now, today, but, but, stands, but, in the, in the but, world of this, you, know, you can put on a, a fill flash uh, and, and, and light it up with three lights – and that would be considered acceptable rather than sort of combining images. But and, that's my and, point. There's no real difference there. And, yeah. you know, and, no, and, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it's a little bit of semantics. But the thing is um, you have to kind of have some sort of uh, uh, boundary that, that we live within. And, you know, you have to look to the organizations that, you know, police this kind of thing. And, you know, it's not against the law, but there are organizations like press photographers, organizations like the national one here in the United States that have a code of ethics that basically just, you know, keeps things uh, on the up and up so that when people look at images made by photojournalists who subscribe to this code of ethics, they know what they're, they're getting. But the, and those, those code, the, the code of ethics, unfortunately, I think w- was written you know, on a stone tablet with a chisel and a hammer, though, you know, and now we have digital technology. So it, yeah. so it sounds like what you're saying is this stuff, you know, if as long as you capture it 
in the camera, anything after is sort of suspect. But if you capture it at the time of capture, that that is what's true. Is that right? Steve? How how different? I'm sorry, Steve, but go ahead, go ahead. How, how different is that from you know like dark room? Because I started out in the dark room, and I I honestly think that some of these standards. And I don't do photojournalism, so it's a little different from my end. I can do whatever I want, and I'm I'm very upfront and honest with what I do in my photography and my Photoshop work, but. People who started in the darkroom, you know, you can do so much to a photo and afterwards you can dodge and burn. There's a photo in my mind that uh, W. Jean, Eugene Smith photo where it's if, – if you see the original, it's actually, you know, it's a very bright image. But he just dodged a lot of, or burned a lot of it out. So all you can see is this one face and it's a lot of manipulation after the fact. And my honest opinion is I think in about 10 years, a lot of the standards are going to change because I think there's just a misunderstanding for people who aren't photographers who look at this to say, oh, you did stuff to it in, in, in a program called Photoshop or whatever. No, I'm sorry, you know, that's manipulation. It's just, you know, because they don't understand that we're still showing, you know, if you do HDR, if you do something like that, you're still showing, you know, a true photo of what it really looked like. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they're just scared that you're messing with it because of all the hype about people adding smoke to those photos from Iraq and all that stuff. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Nicole. And and let me just also clear up the fact that, yes, you can photograph uh, a scene in HDR and you can actually, you know, change things. But you have to make it clear to the viewer exactly what's been done and not necessarily ignore if a special technique was used and not mention it. So and by then, not mention- Steve, what, then what happened? So, you're, so we, right today, we don't have to say, okay, I shot this at you know, ISO 200 at 5.6 at you know, a 60th of a second. We don't, have to, we don't communicate that. So what happens when we know this is coming because I've seen – I've seen this, you know, when you have a camera body that can take successive images at different exposures and blend them together within within the software inside the camera and give you a high dynamic range raw file that's ready to go. That's essentially what what trade did here. That's definitely coming. And look, the fact is we've seen this, you know, as Photoshop came in, we saw National Geographic move the pyramids on their cover without telling anybody. And when it was discovered, it was a big uproar. We remember the OJ cover that was manipulated, the, the, the picture that uh, the police took, the mugshot that ran the same week in Newsweek and Time on the front cover. One was uh, digitally manipulated. Yep. Um, you know, we're... Th- Photographers are obviously ahead of the curve on this, but it's it's the the general public, and and eventually you're, you're absolutely right. Things will evolve and things will change. Things will be more accepted. We're coming from a film world to a digital world to a digital manipulated world, and it's happened very very quickly. And uh, it takes a while. There are a lot of mistakes that are are continually being made. Photographers are seduced by what we can do with Photoshop and post processing, and have gotten in trouble for oversaturating colors. There's been newspaper photographers who've, uh, you know, gone to a fire, just exaggerated the color and ultimately, um, you know, got fired for it. Uh, five years from now, I think things will, will be a little bit different. But the bottom line is, is just the honesty in being able to sort of be happy to tell anyone how you got this picture. This wasn't set yeah, up. I, this wasn't whatever. Yeah, no, I, right. I, I totally agree. I think it's, you know, it has to be for, for journalistic purposes, there has to be a clear sense that there is no intention to deceive. 
Um, yeah. You know, the, the, any of the work was was done to clarify, if anything. Uh, that's why I, you know, I think my example of somebody that you know is crouching in a cave in a scene that you couldn't get that dynamic range is is not necessarily deceptive. Um, and you know, the other piece of it though would just be like Steve said, there should always be information available about what exactly was done. I think that should sort of become a convention for news photography is that the information on what was done to the photo, uh, some place online where you can get to these original photos, you know, it should be, should be part of the process. And as yeah. long as you've got that transparency, then I think it's fine. I think, I think it's, it's all going to be moved in, in say 10 years from now when these camera bodies <laughs> are doing all these fantabulous things in the software, in the camera at crazy speeds and getting a photo like what Trey did. all these, all these techniques that we have to go into Photoshop to do, if you can do those on click, then where's the line? You know, and that's that's why I say that ultimately there is a completely you know subjective call of is it with intention to deceive or intention to be accurate? Right, Steve. I think you're gonna you're gonna see photojournalist edition cameras from Nikon and Canon <laughs> that have a limited feature set that only allow you to do certain things and then you'll have like the everybody else cameras that do in-camera HDR and you know panoramas well, and it. grids I and mean, all this stuff. I, I think that you know when, when these cameras are capable of extending the dynamic range so that you can photograph in that cave and retain detail in the shadow and the highlight and you kind of expect that this is coming then that will be the norm and yeah. you know already we're seeing with these new low light sensitivity like on the Canons and particularly the Nikons that I know of. I mean, it's changing the way photographers are, are shooting. We're not afraid to go to 1600, 3200, 6400, and we're getting beautiful, noiseless results. And we're able to get pictures that we previously could not get before. Yep. And I expect it's only going to get more like that. Well, you know, we could we could talk about this for hours. I know I could, and I have been talking about this for it feels like <laughs> years with people, and and I I think people are starting to come around. Uh, at least some people that I know are coming around to uh, my side of the fence. I think, which is all pixels were born <laughs> to be punished. <laughs> so, <laughs> punish those pixels. So, I know, but you know, I don't I don't claim to be the photojournalist. Uh, but, you know, on that, I wanted to just sort of transition into the some of the listener questions. And, uh, Ron, there's one in here that's sort of a, a good segue from this one from Jason Anderson. You want to you wanna take that one? Yeah, this is actually a great question. It's also one that we probably could spend an entire show talking about. But uh, Jason asks, uh, on the show, the group collectively comes to the conclusion that it's not about pixels or sensors, lenses, or any of the pixel peeping technical machinations. Rather, it's about the shot. Um, you know, I, I won't read everything you wrote in there, but basically, you know, his his question related to, uh, you know, where where is that for a photographer? Where's that line between uh, learning how to understand, you know, understanding the, all the technology behind your camera versus the artistic side of things? And the point he he makes when he's asking that that I really agree with is that. You know, I think it's up to the artist to understand their tools, even if they then decide to go beyond the boundaries of them. Yeah. If you look at some of the classical painters, you know, you look at—I mean, you look at somebody like uh, uh, Picasso or Van Gogh that really, you know, pushed the boundary way, way far away from, you know, photorealistic painting. 
But you look back in their history and their early work, and they clearly had a foundation in knowing the way things like perspective worked um, before they went and, and broke the rules. And I think it's the same thing with, with any artistic endeavors, that the, the better your understanding is of the tools you're using for it, um, the, the more freedom you will then have to break those rules when you choose to. And, and you know, know when you can break the rules or not and know how to how best to break them. And my, my advice on that and the way that I've – I've learned the stuff that I know in many in many ways has been to work backwards. So if if, if I visualize something I want to do and I don't know how to do it, I, I start with the end in mind. Like, wow, I, like, back when I was shooting film, you know, in, in the military, I was like, oh, wow, I want to learn how to do this multiple exposure stuff that I saw in this photography book. Uh, so here's a shot that I want to do. I want to take a picture and have this person there and this person, the same person on this side of the frame. That's what I want to do. So that was the end. And then I had to figure out how to do it. So then I, I went back and figured out, okay, exposure, you got to keep this side of the frame dark and all this stuff. And then, you know, through the process of experimenting and making mistakes and errors, you figure it out. And once you figure it out, you can add that tool to your tool belt. Now I know how to do that kind of stuff. And same with digital photography. If you, you start with the end in mind, I want to do this HDR photograph. I want to do this panorama, but I have no idea how to do it. So this is the end result that I want. Now let me deconstruct that and CSI that and figure out how to, how to get it done. I'll just play counterpoint to – I don't really disagree with anything that Ron or Fred just, just mentioned. But the whole ignorance is bliss idea is also kind of cool as well because there are people that you know just have – they're creative people. They're idea people. Sometimes there are happy accidents that you know if you thought things out, you never would have gotten that picture. Sometimes you – know, Schools are criticized because they're creating kind of cookie-cutter uh, uh, students who are learning in a certain way and uh, are, in a sense, having blinders put on them. So yeah. I think, you know, there's something to be said, and it's always a fight. It's a fight for me, too, because I, I kind of know too much, and I, I would like to return to that innocence of vision I had when I was like a 12-year-old just starting out in photography. Yeah. And it, it takes a while because, you know, especially when you do it as a business, um, you, you tend to sort of learn, you know, you have to work fast. You got to There's some formulary ways to work. And I think, you know, you got to fight that to yeah. a large extent. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you get jaded, right? So, yeah, but, you know, I, I will make the point that you know, happy accidents are, are great. We've all got shots that we can point to that, you know, we, we really in our heart of hearts know that half the reason why that shot is great is just be pure luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's not really... what you tell people. <laughs> well, of course, it's not. especially clients. Right? <laughs> but you know, real, realistically, yeah, we get those all the time. But uh, bottom line is, you can't you can't make a career or you know even uh, have a strong body of work relying on those happy accidents. Those yeah, are the things yeah. that come along, and you're grateful for them when they happen. But you got to be ready for them, and you have to sort of put yourself in a situation where they're able to happen. And and ultimately, uh, you know, especially for a professional photographer. Uh, you, you've got to be able to produce stuff without the uh, you know relying on the happy accident. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the definition though. of a pro, right? That's the, the yeah. pro can 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 produce consistent and repeatable results, not just yeah. happy accidents, right? Just like you said, Fred. My point being, you know, it's the ideas that you have that you want to sort of learn how you're going to communicate that visually, and if you start with that, you know, you'll find a technical way and along the road learn all the technique. I don't disagree at all with any of that. Um, just to be clear. Cool. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's, uh, you know, I think everyone starts heavy on one side and most people, I think photographers are going to start heavy on the artistic side, but 
I think I'm kind of finding my balance, you know, and I'm, I'm still growing in both ways, probably more on the technical side. But for me, when I set up a shot, it's, and maybe this is just my personality, but I set it up and I have this like hope, you know, there's like this hope clinging in my, my mind. I'm like, Oh, I hope it turned out how I wanted it to. And then I look at it and there's always this like surprise feeling of, yay, yeah. <laughs> I got what I wanted. And you know, it's not like, you know, exactly what you're going to get. It's not like a formula that you put together. Cause there's so many different variables that right. uh, in a way they're all kind of happy accidents, even though they were preplanned and, but you know. l- luckily, <laughs> luckily that that the feedback loop from finding out if you got a happy accident or just it's an accident immediate. is immediate with digital. Yeah. You know, remember when you were in the dark room and that that <laughs> feedback was oh, days. <laughs> I can remember. I, I was when I was a kid and I, I worked at a lab and I had somebody ask me if they I take their wedding. I've only done two weddings and both of them were film. You know, when I was younger oh. and just being like on edge and scared watching that film go through the pro you know, the color film go through the processor and just like like nervous and shaking and hoping I see pictures you know, when it comes through and no more of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so Steve, there's, there's one more question in here that has your name on it. It's about uh, photo or photography correspondence schools. And hopefully you know something about that. Okay, sure. Um, I'm just actually looking for the question. I've, I've seen a lot of ads recently for online or correspondence photography schools. Do you think they're worth it? Yep. And this is from uh, Trevor Seitz, who specifically um, is interested in going into sports photography. Um, I got to say that you know when I started out back in the day, um, there was kind of a, a pretty a well-known correspondent. I think it's called the New York Institute. It's still around today, and they've morphed into a digital thing. Um, I don't think uh, there's sort of a, a – you know, getting more information is, is always good, and being in, in kind of a, a, a structured kind of a course, even if it's online, is, is can be fantastic. I mean, things are changing. I'm actually working uh, – for a, a master's program that the School of Visual Arts is going to offer in the fall, and it's going to be an online course. Oh. So the so-called legitimate uh, educational institutions um, are, are sort of realizing that this is, you know, you can't turn back, and this is where we're going, just like HDR and all the other things that we were discussing. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. But I think for this particular um, gentleman, I was just going to point him to um, a couple of sites because he, he also wants to learn about the business of photography. And to do that, I don't know of an online course specifically for it, but there's so much great information out there. I'll point him to a couple of things. There's editorialphotographers.com which is an organization of, made up of about 2,000 of some of the top professional uh, editorial photographers in the world. And they fight for freelancers and editorial rights. And there's all kinds of great, great um, articles on there by great, great photographers. So he could you know, take a course just on that site and learn a lot about it. Um, the book that I like these days for business purposes in the editorial world is by John Harrington. And it's called Best Practices for Photographers. Hmm. So just Google that. And even on John Harrington's site, you'll find uh, he's got his price list out there. So you can find out different price lists. And because he's interested in sports, I also wanted to point him to sportsshooter.com, which is uh, primarily uh, newspaper or new media photographers that with an interest in sports. And there's great resources there. So, um, and lastly, you got to get out there and shoot. Just just shoot the stuff that you want to shoot. Learn from some of these sites, and the only way to do it is to practice. Yeah, mileage. Get 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 that odometer clicking upward on your camera, right? Hey, Steve, have you ever checked out the the number of shots taken count on your Nikon? 
Um, you know, I've, I've, I've often been, and I think that's something people have twigged into, and you can, you, you can find out easily the actuations that your, your camera uh, has, has made, particularly if you're buying a used one, you want to mm-hmm. know how many shots. I'm, I'm, I'm using um, the folder method, and I'm at, right now on this D3, I'm at 105 is the, the first three numbers. So my understanding is that the five represents tens of thousands, so I'm in the Fifty to sixty thousand range oh, with wow. this camera. Jeez, and it's still holding up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, its its shutter is is made for, I believe, three hundred and fifty thousand uh, actuations. That's amazing. That is so, amazing. How about you guys? Uh, Have you peaked? I, I haven't looked. I don't know how many that I've I've photographed with this with the bodies that I'm using now. Honestly, what about you, Ron? No, I have not looked at it at all. Nicole? Not the quantity. Uh, I'm probably well. I've been doing a lot of time lapse lately, so I I guarantee I'm probably over a hundred thousand on mine. I haven't checked, and I you know I I could probably let you know later, but it's a uh, it's probably up there. I, I my goal is to break my camera. That's not like throw it on the ground and break it, but I want to use it until I can't use it anymore. With as far as the shutter goes, so. nice. And then you'll note, you'll note upgrade, to, right? Yeah, note hopefully. To yeah. Self, note to self: Do not buy used cameras from. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> oh, this is well, good. you know the D200s, I could get one for like $600 if I just wanted to. <laughs> That's true. They're well. not very expensive. So. Cool. It's been a, been a great show. Uh, coming up next week um, or in between weeks, we're going to continue to refine the Twiplog blog and put the, uh, the pics and the extras and vendor links and all that good stuff in there. So make sure you guys, Twip audience, check that out. Um, wanted to throw it out there. Does anybody have a tip of the week that they want to share with the audience? Crickets. I can toss one out if you want. Go for it. Uh, uh, just somebody had asked me this this morning on Twitter, uh, and we could probably do a longer session on this, but he was asking about, uh, how do I get good lightning photos? And there's a bunch of different ways to do it, but I thought it might be worth tossing out a real quick one. Um, that I've used in the past, and, and I think lightning sort of in the news because wasn't like the Atlanta airport shut down because of a lightning strike. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, we, you know, the thing I've done, uh, if I'm in the midst of a big lightning storm, is just sort of find my shot, set it up on a tripod, you know, frame it the way I want it, and then just use my timer to uh, shoot a series of long exposure shots. And you know, the nice thing about lightning is that it's it's pretty bright, so you kind of just set up your shot for a decent length of exposure and just let it, you know, keep clicking them off. And, you know, you can leave your shutter open for 30 seconds and you'll get a couple of lightning strikes in there if you're in the midst of a good lightning storm and you get some pretty interesting and fun photos out of it. So here's a question. If you got, say, a nice lightning strike on the right side of the frame and another cool one on the left side of the frame, would you merge them together to make one really cool photo? <laughs> you might, depending on what you think. Yeah, one other tip on the lightning photography, it always helps if you're shooting with a taller photographer than you. <laughs> yeah, wearing a tinfoil hat, right? Exactly. You, you know, I almost would want to say if you're going to do lightning, you almost want to shoot with film. And maybe that's taboo to say that here, but film, it holds those colors. I used to do a lot of lightning photography yeah, when I was, yeah, yeah. I was in high school. And, you know, you can almost like preset it up with your uh, digital and then just go and shoot film. If you, everybody, anybody out there want to try film, you know, and give that a shot. That's a great tip. Cool. Well, I think that'll do it for the show. Uh, Nicole, where, where can people find you? I think Steve Simon has let us know throughout the show that you're Nicole <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably that's probably the best place to find me. I do a lot of linking to my work and everything through there. So 
Nicolzy, N-I-C-O-L-E-S-Y, on Twitter. Awesome. Steve, where can people locate you? Uh, they can locate me, Steve Simon slash Twitter, and uh, stevesimonphoto.com. Gotcha. And Mr. Ron Brinkman, where, where are you located on the ethers? Uh, on Twitter, it's Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N, and my blog is digitalcomposting.com. I just put up a blog post a couple of days ago about um, how point-and-shoot cameras are actually neat little macro cameras just due to the fact of the small sensor and the small lens assembly. It means you can get really close to close to a subject. So if you're walking around and uh, want to take a macro of something, a lot of times rather than pulling out your big camera and, and putting on a macro lens, you may find that your little point-and-shoot can do a better job of it and be ready and quick to go. So that's on digitalcomposting.com. Excellent. And you can find me at twitter.com slash frederickvan. That's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-V-A-N. Or on my blog at frederickvan.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off.